I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on the cost of living. They had people at two different superstores in Ontario, and then they rang through their merchandise, and then they charged $500 to the account, like redeemed $500 worth of points. And then the next one was $400 worth of points. April Canavan lost nearly $1,000 in loyalty points. Well, she didn't lose them. Hackers stole them without breaking a sweat. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud. Welcome to The Cost of Living. If a hacker goes to the trouble of stealing data, you figure they're going for the big money. Bank accounts, credit cards. But they'll go down market. Hey, Even hackers need to buy groceries. Why more of them are coming for your loyalty points. And speaking of technology, old school car thieves have gone high tech. They can steal a car using a laptop. A few keystrokes, they're gone in 60 seconds. And for international auto theft rings, Canadian cars look ripe for the picking. Up first, the Beatles, noted financial advisors that they were, once sang, I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love. Okay, sure. But what about happiness? We're getting philosophical today, Tracy Johnson. We are. Can money buy happiness? It's a big question. Answer seems kind of obvious. Well, it does, and we kind of did think that we... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, done. Let's move on. And we kind of thought we had an answer to this, but now we do have new research that is changing the way we think about money and happiness. This is a question people have been talking about for quite some time. About 15 years ago, a Nobel Prize winning economist, Daniel Kahneman, published a study that got a lot of attention at the time. You may have even heard about it. In the study, Kahneman showed that money does make you happy, but only up to a point. And that point is $75,000 a year. That's in U.S. dollars. That's how much you need to make to cover stuff like food and shelter and just not worry about money all the time. Peter Drummond knows all about that. (laughs) Yeah, I was barely broke. There were times where we were sleeping in cars when I was a kid and times that there was food scarcity. So that's probably the worst kind of um, the, the, the biggest problem with poverty is, for me anyway, was a lack of food. Being hungry sucks. <laughs> it's painful. And it's hard, I mean, it's hard to be happy when you're hungry. When he was growing up, Peter's mom, as he puts it, found loopholes in the credit system. So she would get on the wrong side of the law. That meant sometimes they'd have a lot of money, but then she'd go to jail. The family would lose everything. So back then... I was happy when I was poor, but I was in a lot of pain. And so what I would say is like, like when you're broke, 
the pain, frustration, and anger are all there. But like, I, I, I'm not someone who is allowed to feel other emotions <laughs> as a child. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the optionality for emotions was happiness and anger for the most part. So there, were, it was always one of those two things. I was never like sad. I was never upset. I was always either happy or angry. <laughs> it's a tough way to grow up. And happiness researchers, they agree you do need enough money to meet your basic needs if you're trying to be happy. And once you do that, Kahneman's study found that making more money, it doesn't do much because your happiness hits a plateau. And he's a Nobel Prize winner, so people listened. In fact, one CEO in Seattle gave all of his employees a raise based on this research. As for Peter, he definitely got happier when he started making money. He was 18. He started doing door-to-door sales. He was good at it. And the money followed. As I get more money, the anger fades away because there's no reason for it. He started making a lot. And the more money he made the happier he got. So this blows up what Kahneman had argued, but it does support what the most recent happiness research said would happen. This research was done by a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Matt Killingsworth, and he found that more money makes you happier. So we have this happiness research smackdown, and the two professors, they decided to team up and figure out who is right and who is wrong. And they do agree on a bunch of stuff. Like, that happiness is made up of more than just one thing. There's your big picture life satisfaction. Are you feeling good about your job, your family, your life goals? And then there's how do you feel on the day-to-day, your emotional well-being. Right? Like, we all have positive feelings, love, laughter, kind of ha-ha, good times. And we have negative ones, stress, anger, worry. So the big revelation in the first happiness study from 2010 was that many of your negative feelings go away at that $75,000 a year mark. But when those two academics went back at it, what they found was that the first research got one big thing wrong. It had surveyed thousands of people and asked, how are you feeling the day before? It asked questions like, did you smile or not yesterday? But those questions are not actually a good way to gauge happiness. So as it turns out, if you think about it, if you didn't smile at all the day before, that's not so much a measure of, you know, happiness or positive emotions. It seems to be more of a measure of negative emotions, right? Like if if the answer to the question of like, have you smiled at all yesterday is no, you're probably not doing so well. That's Kostadin Kushlev. He's a happiness researcher at Georgetown University. The guy behind the latest study, Killingsworth, went about things differently. He asked people in real time how they were feeling. He would actually ping their phones randomly during the day. And then people would answer him on a scale ranging from very bad to very good. And he found that happiness does keep going up as you make more money. Here's how Killingsworth explained it in an interview with NBC. As people earned more money, they felt more in control of their life. Uh, it's easy to imagine how if you have more money, you can, you know, you see organic raspberries in the grocery store and that's what you're in the mood for. So you buy it instead of buying, you know, a box of dried pasta. Or maybe if you are working in a job that you think is kind of unfulfilling, you can quit your job and you have sort of a financial cushion. Sort of in these very small ways and very profound ways, you can sort of steer your life in the direction you want a little bit more easily, uh, I think, when you have more resources. So more money can give you a bit more control over your life. And that can help cut down on your unhappiness, which leaves some more room to be happy. 
So is this it? Is this the answer to can money buy happiness? Not exactly. The relationship between income and happiness, regardless of how you define happiness, is very weak statistically. And so, you know, the difference between making, you know, 15,000 a year and 250,000, according to the latest data on, on this 100 point scale of happiness, is only five points, right? So imagine that. So, yes, we can detect this, it's there, it's statistically significant. But is it practically significant? And do we want to organize our lives around, you know, earning more and more money? Because you have to work to make that money, and work is work. So what he is saying is that on a 100-point scale of happiness, money only accounts for five of those points. So, yes, having more money does increase your happiness, but it's only by a little bit. And then there's another wrinkle. We aren't all the same. Right, there's something called the unhappy minority, which covers about 20% of people. And once they have enough money to meet their basic needs, making more does not make them any happier. What the researchers say is, if you're rich and miserable, more money won't help. You'll still be miserable. Peter does not fall into that 20%. Uh, He was so good at sales, he joined a tech startup at one point, it sold, he cashed in, and now his annual income is like north of seven figures. Like million bucks a year plus. He is rolling. And when he first started making money, like serious money, he did what you think a young guy might do. He splashed out on clothes. He went to clubs. He just like lived large. But did that kind of spending make him happier? Every experience you have, in some sense, depreciates the value of that category of experience. So like if you go on vacation a year, that feels amazing. If you go on four, like the fourth vacation in a year, it's going to feel less amazing than the first. The tenth or twelfth is going to feel just less and less and less. So those, so if you keep buying vacations, because a lot of people tell me, well, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy travel. And it's like I promise you that travel is going to be the exact same thing as shoes. <laughs> like the first pair, the first pair of Louboutins feels amazing. The tenth is just like now it's just table stakes. Like that, like like if you like you need to go to Hermes or some other category now, and then that feels good, and then you buy ten of those, and then that's irrelevant, right? And so, the more of those experiences you buy, the less happy they make you. I would like to try out this theory, just maybe over one year. The things you sacrifice for science, Tracy Johnson. <laughs> but you heard him. It's not going to help. Diminishing returns. Right. It's this idea called the hedonic treadmill, which is the more you have, the more you want, and the more you have, and the more you want, and on and on it goes. Right. And stuff, as Peter said, can't buy happiness. And happiness researchers, they agree with that. They say there is something that matters more. So what is the secret to happiness? In some ways, it's not a secret at all. Uh, We all know the answer to that. And the secret to happiness, and maybe some would argue to unhappiness, uh, is other people. As a happiness researcher, uh, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, right? Because once you say it, it's like, wow, is this, (laughs) you know, you, you have to research this. Like, we all know this intuitively, ultimately. But at the same time, uh, if you think about it, we do spend all this time, you know, pursuing these uh, goals, like including money goals, thinking that that's going to bring us a lot of happiness. And that is not the case. So he is saying that it's not money that buys happiness, but relationships, your family and friends chatting with the person you buy your coffee from, your coworkers. 
Are you saying <laughs> I am the key to your happiness? I'm going to buy you a coffee, Paul. I will make me so very happy. <laughs> so you know what? Maybe money can't buy all the happiness, but getting those organic raspberries, Trace, mm. it's pretty nice. Or flying business class. I would try that. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On your Radio Unbuy podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberstrude. If you do anything online, so, hi everyone, your information has almost certainly been stolen. The latest in hackers hacking stuff is being called the mother of all data breaches. A hundred billion leaked records from companies like LinkedIn, Adobe, Twitter. And we hear about this kind of thing so often, it can be like white noise. But our producer, Daniel Lerman, says maybe don't tune it out because hackers aren't just stealing your passwords. Some are coming for your loyalty points. Before the holidays, April Canavan had a million points sitting in her PC Optimum account. Enough for a thousand bucks worth of merchandise. It took her a year to save those points, but it only took 25 minutes from the moment I was hacked to the moment they had all the points and were gone. Her points were spent at two different superstores on the other side of the country. I'm located on the West Coast, so there's there's no way that I was in Ontario at the same time. It was a huge blow for April. She'd been planning to use those points to buy Christmas presents. When you're a single parent, you literally plan your every dollar. So just to have it all ripped out from under you, is, it's really disappointing. Our appetite for points is growing. On average, Canadians belong to seven rewards programs. All those points add up to real money. And for hackers... They're an irresistible target. If I think about my own cell phone, I probably have over 200 apps installed on that phone. A lot of those accounts also have some sort of loyalty points system baked into them. Kevin Lee is a risk expert for SIFT, a digital security firm that helps businesses and their customers protect themselves from fraud. He says thieves do all sorts of things with stolen points. Redeem them for electronics and gift cards, then resell those items for cash. And sometimes they just take those points and treat themselves. So fraudsters got to eat as well. And so if we're talking about a burger joint or something like that, hey, if I'm the fraudster in this role play, I will definitely take advantage of that, uh, that burger as well. 
just this month, the Seam Plus program tightened its protocols for redeeming points. Members could now be asked to show ID at the checkout. In the last year and a half, PetroCanada, Indigo and Sobeys were hit with data breaches. All those companies have rewards programs. So, how do you keep your points safe? Well, for one, make sure your password isn't crap. Password 1234, it is the most popular password out there, I can tell you. What you need is a dreadfully complicated password, and you don't have to memorize it. Just get a password manager. It's an online filing cabinet that safely stores all your logins. Also, if the loyalty program that you're with has two-factor authentication, turn it on. It's like kryptonite for criminals. They're going to go after the lowest hanging fruit here. And the fraudster, the criminal, will want to leave your account alone because there's plenty of other fish out there that don't practice the same security. April Canavan has been dialing up security on all her digital accounts. And she did get her points back. But it took a lot of calls to customer service and hours waiting on hold. It was such a headache that... It's not something I really want to be loyal to at this point. I'm kind of just sitting here in limbo deciding if it's something I even want to partake anymore. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrud. The most stolen vehicle in Canada is the Honda CRV. More than 5,000 of them were stolen last year alone. Auto thefts have gone up so much, the feds are holding a national summit to get a handle on the problem. Police, border agents, the auto industry, they'll all be there. Car thieves? Eh, probably not. Governments are also putting another $121 million towards enforcement. So why are so many cars getting boosted? Sid Kingma is the Director of Investigations for Equity, which fights insurance fraud. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So, Sid, auto theft is being described as a crisis. And crisis is obviously a pretty heavy word. I mean, why, at least among industry folks, does everyone's hair seem to be on fire over this right now? Well, the numbers have just really skyrocketed in the last uh, year or two. Um, For 2022, the insurance losses um, were over a billion dollars in auto theft, and that was the first time it exceeded a billion dollars. Now, you were a police officer. Is auto theft different now than when you were on the job? Yeah, so I retired from law enforcement in 2019. And um, yes, it certainly has uh, changed since I was on the job. Um, it's become more and more sophisticated. We're seeing, um, you know, tools with the bad actors are using. They're using laptops and those kind of things. Um, whereas when I was uh, in policing, it was a screwdriver and a hammer and, and you could uh, get a car started or a vehicle started. Well, how, how is someone using a laptop to steal a car? Well, it's just a sophisticated way of stealing um, uh, the theft. And uh, what they do is they, there's, there's two 
sort of we'll call it methods to uh, the sophisticated thefts. One's a relay uh, attack where basically your your key fobs or all our key fobs are newer vehicles. They communicate with the vehicle. And when it's in close enough proximity to the vehicle, the vehicle knows that it recognizes that. And so when you pull on the, the handle and, and your key is close enough, the door just automatically unlocks and opens. And then again, when it's close enough uh, to the ignition and you press your uh push button start, then the vehicle starts. Um, and the bad actors are attacking that. And basically one, this relay attack is they amplify um, that signal from within your house by using a large antenna. And you know, they go, you'll see, you can see videos online where they, they go up to your front door, um, hold out this big, large antenna. And then a second person is by the car itself and tries the door and, and, and is able to open the door and start the vehicle and then drive off. I mean, really? There's just dudes running around neighborhoods with antennas? Yeah, well, I mean, the they antenna, you generally they keep the antenna hidden in a, a bag until they're they're utilizing it. But yeah, that's uh, that, we've seen that. Uh, and then there's also uh, what we call the CAN bus line attack. And the CAN bus line in your vehicle is uh, it's a line that connects all the modules to the brain of the vehicle. And they're able to attack that and send a message through it Uh asking the vehicle to unlock again and start, and it does that, and uh, then they're able to drive it away. And in both instances, once they're driven away from the theft location, they program a new key to the vehicle. So are vehicles now, given the FOB technology, the technology you're talking about, are they easier to steal now than they were when you used to have like a, you know, put a Slim Jim in and Jimmy the lock? Well, I don't know if it's easier, but it's certainly different. Um, You know, when there's like for the sophistication end of it, I mean, there's an investment on the on the bad actors part, right? Because these tools that they're using, um, you know, they're available uh, on the net, on the internet, um, and they can be fairly costly. Now, is it the technology part of this, why we're seeing the increase in numbers or, or why is the problem getting so bad now? What's what's changed? I think it's, I think it's really a question of supply and demand. So there's a demand out there for these vehicles. Um, and Canada has a great supply of them. And in fact, Interpol, I think, has named us as one of the largest contributors of uh, stolen vehicles to the world. Who is who is stealing these cars? Well, they're organized groups or organized gangs, if you want to call them that. But, uh, you know, and they have relationships and connections across the world. And, uh, you know, they basically get a shopping list of the vehicles that are in demand and, uh they go shopping in, you know, in Canada and they're able to find them and then ship them uh, to our ports and then out the ports and in ships. And do we know where a lot of where these cars are ending up? Yes. Um, a lot of them are uh, ending up in Africa and uh, the Middle East, the uh, United Emirates, um, Saudi Arabia, Oman. Depending on the market and where it ends up, it can be worth the same value as it is here or even more. So let's just say, you know, a a top end level Ford F-150 is, you know, what, 80,000 to maybe 100,000, I guess, depending. So they're going to get that uh, in their market or or even more. So Ford F-150s are getting stolen and shipped overseas. What else? What are the most stolen vehicles? So um, we put out a uh, top 10 stolen list every year in November. And uh, for Canada, the number one um, uh, was a CRV actually this year, so it's an SUV. And then number two is the Dodge Ram 1500 series, and then the Ford F 150. <laughs> so 
Um, you know, we were talking about the third highest uh, um, stolen vehicle. Well, if you look at something like the the Honda CRV, what, do you have any idea why a CRV would be at the top of that list? Yeah, I think there's lots of them um, in our country. And then, secondly, I think it's a uh, it's so it's popular here. It's also sort of globally serviceable, right? Has a high resale value both um, here and internationally. Um, uh, and so it, it just makes it attractive to the uh, bad actors. And then if we think about some of the ramifications of these cars getting stolen, I mean, is there a larger cost to this? Well, there's a cost to all of us in this, right? Because, well, everyone who pays an insurance premium for their vehicle, um, because there's going to be a portion of your premium that's going to be attributed to the auto theft costs uh, here in Canada. What if uh, you're listening to this and you own a Honda CRV and your ears perked up and you think, whoa, is there anything you can do to help yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we recommend that... Um, First and foremost, I mean, if you can park your vehicle inside, that's probably the number one safety measure you can take. Um, you know, if, if you're, you're lucky enough to have a garage. Um, and, and we call it the layered approach. Every sort of layer that you can add just makes it that much safer. Um, you know, park your vehicle in well-led areas. And, of course, obviously lock your vehicle. And, and uh, if you have any security alarms, activate those. Um there's also other sort of aftermarket immobilizer devices. There's, you know, again, the, you know, that's tech, but um, it is improving. You know, there's the, the sort of um, immobilizers or call them, I guess, starting a vehicle. So you can customize it where um, obviously your key has to be present, but you your fan speed has to be on number two and your left signal indicator has to be engaged. And without those two things happening, the vehicle won't start. Um, and no one's going to know that except the, the personal owner of that vehicle. Is this on us? Is this on law enforcement? I mean, we're seeing this big uh, increase. It feels like now we're going to throw some more money uh, at policing and, and enforcement here, but we haven't done that to date. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out, hey, let's let, let's point some fingers, Sid. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think pointing fingers is the right way to go. I, I think it's no one organization or one agency that's at fault and it's not no one organization or agency that's going to be able to solve it and i think again that's why this summit's important because you know uh, law enforcement's going to be there um, safety canada uh, customs and uh, border security the insurance industry auto manufacturers you know there's a lot of stakeholders that are going to be there and, and it's going to take every one of us to be able to come up with some solutions well what would you do if you owned a crv I would park it inside my garage. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, again, I, I would take some of those layered approaches if I couldn't. All right. Well, Sid Kingma, thanks for all that. Yeah, no problem. I was just going to say one other thing I would probably do is I'd put a, uh, a tracker on it, my own tracker, so that if it did get stolen, if I was unlucky enough, that then maybe I potentially could track, the, track it down myself. Hmm, like an air tracker, like one of those Apple jobs. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Well, thanks for all that, Sid. Okay, yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Sid Kingma is the Director of Investigations for Equity. That's all for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. 
The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. And before we go, I'd also like to give a special thanks to Havoc Franklin, a true original. Thank you, Havoc, for your guidance, thoughtfulness, and time helping all of us and this show. Appreciate you, Havoc. I'm Paul Havertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.